Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is U-Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hi, Gary. Hello, Guy. You all right? Yes. So, Mike Bat. Mike Bat, which is a name very, very similar to my dad's name, which gets slightly confusing because my dad was Mike Pratt. <laughs> That's literally not- a problem no one else on earth has and is actually not a problem for me. I don't know why I even said it. If you start calling him father during this uh, interview <laughs> chat, we'll know well, why. Maybe that's going to be the bombshell. Maybe we're going to find out that he, we're going to have a Darth Vader moment. In fact, he <laughs> is my real father. What he is, is a man of so many colours and he has so many skills, doesn't he? I mean, he's done everything. He's such a polymath, yeah. Starting as an arranger, then writer, then, you know, producer, then dis- discoverer, then Svengali, entrepreneur, children's book writer, Musical writer, it's you know, it's yeah, endless. Musical theatres, obviously, you know, uh, and 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 the Wombles. Let's not forget the Wombles. Come on, which and and which and uh, an amazing cast of of like really quite cool musicians have gone through all those things. Yeah, Chris Spedding was one, and uh, Steel Ice Fan. All around my hat. Come on, who doesn't remember all around my hat? So Mike, Mike is worth listening to because he's uh, he's. I've known him for a long time, and he is one of the funniest people I, I know. And he is he is very very engaging. So let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Too, too get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Mike, there he is. How beautiful. Mike, you said you've been doing your own doodles there, but, but that's what you do as well, isn't it? You're so artistic. Well, thank you. Um... Yeah, I do. I doodle a lot. I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a dabbly doodler. Dabbly doodle in, in, uh, when you're not in between your tweets. <laughs> yeah, I always like to be doing something. Beautiful drawings. Well, sometimes they're beautiful drawings, and some. Well, thank you. I mean, I shouldn't say that even there. Sometimes it's very immodest, but I, sometimes they're just bits of shitty little scribbles, and I still, I still t- tweet them even if they're shitty because. It's what comes out, you know. But you are, I mean, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you're such a polymath, Mike. It, does, it seems like that you have to be engaged in some form, if it's writing or performing or, or whatever. It's like you can't sit still for a second, can you? No. Um, I'm a bit of a got-to-be-doing-something type of guy. But you guys are too as well, aren't you? you... But you, Yeah, your, your skills... <laughs> not on your, not on your level. But you're, you know, oh, come on. your skills are wide. That's what I'm trying to yeah. say. You're, you know, it, it doesn't matter. One day you, when you wake up in the morning, it could be a song, it could be a drawing, it could be a, a, a book. I mean, we, Guy and I have been looking at your work and it's like every five minutes it's like, oh my God, he's done something else. Yeah, something else. Oh, there's this, this comic, there's this musical, there's this, there's this children's book, there's this, you know, it's... 
It's like, make your mind up. Make your mind up. Who are you? <laughs> yeah, it's desperation. Who are you? Who is um, Mike Bat? That is my problem. It's not. An, it's not really a curse. It's sort, of, but it is a sort of a curse. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, seriously, let's getting back to that question. Who who do you feel you are? Because you're, so, you're you know, you sing, you 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 perform. You're. I mean, I've been watching oh. you dancing in the last couple of days, or what? You know. Have you? Well, on zero zero. But uh, oh, you know, yeah, that. You know. Yeah, that sort of mimey dancing, really. Everyone's dancing around me, and I'm kind of like trying to be Marcel Marceau in the middle. You know, you've produced big rock acts, and you know, I tell yeah. you, I kind of see you as sometimes, Mike. Do you know who Ken Campbell was? You must, oh. must know Ken Campbell. He was a sort of theatrical impresario, and hmm. and he was oh, fantastic. Yeah, a real all-rounder, taking chances, yeah. but full of humour. You're not supposed to be able to, and I'm the living proof that you can't combine all those things and be taken seriously in all of them <laughs> or any of them. Because let me just complain for a minute. Because because I joke around a bit and do cartoons and bits of artwork, a bit more serious, and then write something and, uh, you know, I, I, I've never been... Well, I say I've never been a band member um, like, you, like you guys, um, but I have. I've been a womble, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's that counts, yes, doesn't it? Because you go on top of the pops and, you know, pretend to be famous. Even if with it's a, with a load it is, of very cool rock and rollers, it must be said the people who actually pass through the wombles. Yeah, yeah, true. And and it was fun, and I'm not ashamed of it musically or anything. I'm just saying that. So I'm not central to the rock and roll community, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm sort of an outsider. But as the years have gone, I've become not quite such a to be avoided outsider. I'm a sort of accepted outsider, but I'm not in the. I'm not a sort of central rock and roll guy, even though I've produced a lot of heavy, you know, like Hawkwind and Steel Ice Band. Oh, no, no, like we, we want to get to that. We want to get to that. Uh, uh, because there's there's some fantastic stuff early on, I mean, where you started. I'm sort of really just... You asked me yeah. for a psychoanalysis. Yes. A, a, a psychoanalysis. Um, and before you get to my mother... Um, <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, that was it, a long time ago uh, and he regrets it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it wasn't my choice. <laughs> <laughs> this is going well. Uh, yeah. No, being born wasn't... I meant, I meant being born wasn't yeah, my choice, course, is what course, I'm course, saying. Course. You've just done this new musical with uh, someone, I think it's called Qua Noir, right? Oh, which yeah. is a cop with David Quantic. With David Quantic, yes. You, yeah. You look at yes. something like Lewis Carroll, which is where, where you worked on... Uh, on the hunting of the, the snark, snark. Yeah. and there's something about all of these things that have, have got a lot that have got something in common haven't they you know they're they're this sort mm. of like strange lands people trying to survive in this strange world you i know. suppose so uh, um, somehow that, yeah. a king and queen is like coming got it got it you know it, it was in the lewis carroll situation you know there's authority yeah. that you're fighting against through humor yeah not so much through through humor often hu through humour, surreal, surreal. Um, it's funny that I one I don't know if this one or it's just me does things and then realises how how like your real life it is. But it was when I got back from my two and a half year journey around the world, which by the way for you guy it was Atlantic, Caribbean, Caracas, Panama, turn right up to past uh, Mexico, L.A. Waited for a while there. Then LA, Hawaii, Hawaii, Fiji, Fiji, Australia. Wow. That was the route. Why? I don't know why. It was the most <laughs> stupid thing one would ever do. If you, no, know, it's if amazing. You about... I'm, I'm, I'm in awe here. I mean, that's that's. No, no, no. I mean, no, no, there was... were no awes. <laughs> uh... <laughs> that's that's why I had to stop at the end of the Atlantic. I was exhausted. <laughs> we spent three months in the Caribbean, which is where. I went to Montserrat and we made an album and I'd met McCartney, the McCartney family there. That's where I first met Paul. I never oh. hadn't known him before that. Uh, anyway, so I told you we would... Um, what album was that, Mike? That album was called Six Days in Berlin, weirdly. <laughs> yeah. It was written in the Caribbean. Two albums, you're saying, you did on that trip. You yeah. Did, and a TV show in Australia. Yeah. But you met, yeah. McCart you met McCartney and how was that for you when you were up in Antigua or, and he, he was there? Was that not your first meeting? 
Yes, it was. And I went the, to recce the studio, not as if I was going to approve it. I knew it would be great because it was George Martin's studio. And we were we were moored, as I say, stern two in, in Nelson's dockyard. And we thought we'd, what we'd do is we'd just go over there, anchor off uh, Montserrat. It's about, it was a day's, guy would call it not sailing, but I'd say it's a day's <laughs> sail. But it's a day's day steaming. yeah. A day's stinking yeah. to get to... Um, to Montserrat, then we dropped anchor. Didn't know Paul was there. Didn't know that Wings were recording there at all. And oh, um, Band on the Run. A, it was band, no, it wasn't Band on the Run. That was in Africa, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the one they did with um, all the duets, um, Ebony and Ivory, oh, okay. uh, and uh, the one with Carl Perkins and various oh, other right. yeah, yeah. people that came in. What was so, that? Uh, it was just after John, John Lennon. In fact, we found out John Lennon had been shot when we arrived at the Canaries. That was a terrible wow. shock. What was McCartney to you? Were the Beatles an epiphanic moment for you? Because you must oh, have been very, God. very young. Epiphanic? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know the word epiphanic when that went. No, because I think I've just made epiphanic. it up. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, oh, God, yeah. The first real music I got into was Schubert's Ninth Symphony that came through when I lived in Bradford and I was about nine. When you know they used to get these bulb catalogues and stuff through the door, um, all this junk mail. One of them was concert hall record clubs, and you could get four free EP, uh, four free EPs of classical music. EPs of classical nothing. music. A selection of Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, you mean all in the same? They're, they're slotted into a piece of the card. Yeah, uh, an EP like we all know an EP. There used to be the yeah. vinyl ones. Yeah, yeah. Four yeah. tracks on it. Okay. So one of them would be selections from Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky. One of them would be uh, whatever it was. You know the, the other classical pieces. Uh, Brahms Hungarian dances. Da 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 da. It's in minor, isn't it? Hang on. Hang yeah, on. come on. Anyway, that, which was a very bad rendition of it, of course, as we all know. Oh, I'm, um, I'm in tears here. That gave me a love for classical music, and it was cheap because it was Concert Hall Record Club. The Beatles came along and spoiled all of that because they didn't spoil it, they added to it. But that this was the beginning of the multi-torn... Where do I go in life musically, Mike Bat? Because I I I knew every I had to I was forced to buy once a year with my pocket money for twenty six shillings uh, a classical album by the people who had inveigled me in by giving me four free EPs. So I became a really interested in classical music, but I never had any people teaching me it. It was all from reading it. So I used to pronounce all. All, all the all, all the um, composers the wrong way. For example, Strauss, I used to pronounce Strauss because it was written that way. And Sibelius, I would pronounce Sibelius because that was Sibelius. the way it's written. Nobody in my world spoke music. My mum and dad weren't musical. And I, oh. I just, it was all from... Were you learning anything? Like, Were you learning anything at school or having lessons? Well, I did, yeah. But it was junior school, uh, right. you know, nine, ten years Just old. Recorder, and, and then. We didn't <laughs> record. Yeah, it was literally that. Mm. Um, even then, I wasn't really ever around enough people, so I used to always pronounce all the Italian expressions wrong and everything. Even when I started working with orchestras when I was about eighteen, I'd say something that was laughably wrong, um, and they would often be polite enough not to la not to laugh. But uh, I'd find out sort of a year later that I'd said something completely stupid to an orchestra and um but how did you start they... to learn i mean you obviously your skills in orchestration are, are well known i mean how how did that come into your life i used to go and see john barbaroli so john barbaroli conducting yeah. uh, free concerts uh, at the george's hall in bradford when i was about 10 or 11 um this is bradford just... bradford up north up north because there's no yeah. hit there's no hint in your voice. Well, the fish cakes are better. Yeah, but there's no, hint, there's no hint in your voice, Mike. But it's a, there is a very slight is flatness to my vowels that people who are from the north would notice. But um, we went from the north to the south and all different places because ah. my dad was a civil engineer and he would apply for different jobs to try and get up the promotion ladder. And we'd go from Eastbourne to York to South... We were born in Southampton. I was born in Southampton. Oh, there you go. OK, fine. So uh, Bradford, 
we were in Bradford for quite a long time, and then down to Winchester, where we were in grammar school, and that's where my formative years really were. That's from where I went to see Jimi Hendrix at the in Southampton when I was seventeen. Ah. Things like that. Um, because yeah, you... Jimmy rang up and said, I want, "I want to see you. I want you to come and see me." No, he didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you, yeah, but you did get in really quickly with the in crowd. I mean, no yeah. question. In fact. It, it, because because hat sash and the coloured coat. Yes. Let me oh, just wow. just describe who they are. They were they were two guys, Nigel Weymouth and Michael English, and they were poster designers. They created that whole kind of psychedelic Art Nouveau look for posters. Used to do the poster work for the UFO Club on Tottenham Court Road, where Pink Floyd started. Wow, you know an awful lot. Of and stuff. and Granny Takes a Trip came out of. It's either Nigel or Michael did Granny Takes a Trip. Nigel. Yeah. Nigel. They had this. Um, they used to change with the John Pierce. With John Pierce, the Taylor John Pierce, yeah, 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 yeah. got several of his. See, I wasn't that much. I wasn't actually part of the in crowd. I was head of A and R. Da 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 da. Yeah, hang on, we already get to that. Yes, because was you you sent some songs to a record company and just became the head of A and R. No, not quite as easily as that. But it It must be. That's what Wikipedia says. That must be what happened. (laughs) 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 Uh, 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 I um. I slept around. We, see, I told you, we zoomed straight over Yeah, we Montserrat, are jumping because I was talking about Hapsash, but we yes, will get there on. just to say that, that... We'll come back to Montserrat later. That yeah, yeah, was a yeah. very in-trendy moment for you, wasn't it, the, the Hapsash thing? But to get there, Guy trendy was trying to force moment, us... Yeah. No, I mean, Jesus Christ, they were the most... Yeah. The hippest crowd in town. If you they look, were. If you look up Hapsash and the Colour Coat on the, on the internet, there's yeah. a picture of Nigel Wayne of Michael English and you. I know, in my... In my uh, 17, 18-year-old? Yeah, 18, in, a, in my Austin Reed suit. Because I said to Ray Williams, who'd signed me as an artist, right? Who he's the one who had had my job as A&R guy at Liberty Records before me. He really was in with the in crowd. Uh, did you ever know who Ray Williams was? No. Yeah, I know he, the name. He's, he, he discovered Elton on the same pretty much day as he discovered me. Oh, he put Elton and, and Bernie together, he didn't he? He put Elton and Bernie right, together yeah. and left to manage them, leaving a chair empty for me. Ah. Well, it wasn't le- empty for me, it was just empty. So as I'd been signed to the label and I'd produced one of my own B-sides, the head of the record company said, who produced this? And somebody said, well, Mike produced it himself. They said, well, give him the head of A&R job immediately. So that's what happened. So there I was sitting in this office and one day in comes Hapshash and the Coloured Coat. And they say, oh, you're Mike Bat, you're the head of A&R. Of course, there was an appointment made in a book. You know, <laughs> at this very posh office with, with I mean, I, they paid me absolutely shit money, I've got to tell you, less than my secretary, but at least I had a secretary. And I had this office that was happened to have been vacated by Alan Keane, who was the publisher. He wanted to start his own company. So there's this big office available. It's the only one in the building. So I got this massive office with a signed Picasso lithograph on the wall um, and a grand piano and a secretary with perfect pitch. I mean, what more could you want? And are you thinking, um, wow, I'm having it away on my toes here? This is... I thought... This is it, you know. I don't really need to live much longer, really. This is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and a little card with Mike Bat, head of A and R Liberty Records. So I could get into any club. If I had, if I hadn't had a girlfriend, I could have probably got one. Quite and by, by now, you'd already produced the Groundhogs first album. No, or no, that's that, that was sixty-eight. That all began then, because then I was right. <clears throat> looking after production for this essentially quite a big American record company that was starting off small again, small in England. We were their sort of outpost in England. There was, I think, 11 or 15 people worked in Albemarle Street, a very posh office uh, in in London. Uh, And everyone, you know, looked to me to make the decisions about what we, A, what we put out. There was a bloke called Andrew Lauder, you might know. He was a a bit of a figure around the business but he, he was our production manager. He wasn't the A&R guy, but he really helped me a lot because he knew a lot more about... He was more, much more of a fan than I was. So he listened to music. He, he knew every number of every... Uh, every catalogue number of every record we put out and uh, quite a lot of catalogue numbers of 
records other people put out. You say he's more of a fan than you are. So at this point, is, are, you still, are you basically more interested in making your own music than kind of yeah. listening to yeah, other people? Yeah, that's people's? the point. I, yeah. was, I was sort of like, what shall I write next? For my, I spend my day at the piano thinking about my own career. So it was a bad move for them to have appointed me as head of Anarchist. I was more interested in making my own records. But but uh, he, he, for example, knew all about the... I mean, I was really into blues. Blues was my natural way of playing. When I started in the pub when I was 15, 14, 14 in the pub, I would play blues until somebody asked me to play Slow Boat to China, in which case I tried as hard as I could. Well, and that's why you end up with Groundhogs, I guess, because that's a very blues that's, oriented Yeah, that, that exactly. first album is full on, just blues. Yeah, blues, blues. so... Bass so is quite quiet, in. Mike. So I have a word with you as a producer, mate. The bass is a bit quiet on that. I, I wouldn't have been happy. Is it? That was me, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. you see... <laughs> Uh, uh, well, what can I say? I think the bloke was just playing too loud, yeah. too soft. I kept saying to him, "Can you please play louder?" He said, "Fuck off." So, uh, did you discover them? Was it was it with Tony McPhee? Was I this, did, you... if you like, discover them, but only because they came into the office at the behest of somebody else. And um, we made one rec—I made one record with them, the scratching the surface. So, and the only problem with it was the bass wasn't loud enough. But anyway. <laughs> We still sold 5,000 copies. Um, and the other problem with it was that they, the, in those days, there were, I mean, it was Tony McPhee as a serious guitar player. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you both know. Yeah, yeah. And um, I had a great time working with him. I used him on the Hapshash album when we'd made the, first, the second Hapshash album. He came in and he, was, he, gave all, he made it all dreamy and lovely and uh, raunchy. But anyway, meanwhile, back at uh, when I first started to produce the Groundhogs, um, the the fashion was to do long tracks. Fourteen minutes was nothing, you know. So, so we it was the end of a long day. We were at Marquee Studios, and I've got me. There's Jerry, the engineer, and that and the band. And then the band say, okay, well, let's just do whatever the next track was. So they go off into the band. It's, we've, it's a hot day, the heat coming off the machines and the of desk. We're feeling tired. But anyway, we go. they go into the stu studio and they start off the, the track. And when they came back in to listen to the playback, myself and the engineer were, were flat out asleep across the desk. <laughs> and, the, uh, and, the, and the tape had come off the end of the thing and was flicking round and round and round. And they, they had to wake us up so they could hear it back. And obviously, without probably not surprisingly, I didn't produce album number two. <laughs> but you did go on and produce Family, though, didn't you? Well, no, you arranged. You did all the arrangements for Family. That's didn't right. You? Yeah. yeah. The deal with very family. cool, very very cool album to be. Do you know what I was so, listening yeah. to it yesterday? It's called uh, "Living in a Doll's Mu House." Mu music in a Doll's right. House. Music in a Doll's House. And and I could hear where Peter Gabriel may well have got his vibe. Because Roger Chapman's voice is incredible on that, and it's the year oh. before Trespass, and you listen really? to it; it's very proggy, and it's it, it does sound like Peter was about to sound on Trespass. When they brought that album into us, it was half finished, and we played it loud in my office, and fucking hell, it blew me away. It made me think, this is how naive I was, and how not in the inset I was. I thought this must be what it must be like to be on drugs. Because, I mean, I didn't do drugs, you know. I mean, I, uh, dope made me sick and I didn't ever get the chance to do anything else. Didn't go to all the sort of beautiful people parties, even though they came into even, my office. Even though you produced the hapshash and the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was I pretending all that drugs, just the same as when I did Lewis Carroll. You know, I never did... I've never done LSD, for example. Um, oh, was, I've never he, read Lewis Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, moving on. Um, it just blew us away. It was so imaginative, punchy, uh, full of surprises. Um, I think I might have nicked a bit of that. You've got to put surprises into music, kind of thing. You told me you were describing earlier how some of my music you'd heard on Zero Zero, for example, was electronic, which was because it was the early '80s, and they lent me a Fairlight, the very first. Oh Fairlight wow. That uh, of course, because it, it came from Australia. Yeah, and I, I went to the factory because it, it was in Fairlight, which was a suburb of Sydney. Potts oh, Point. I didn't know uh, that. Potts Point. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's worth and, listening and, to. It's named for Fairlight. Yeah. Um, and his voice sent the shivers through you. And yet, when they when he sang something like "Mellow in Grey," which was a beautiful ballad, which for which they wanted strings, 
for me to write the strings. They got me to write, um, oh, um, four or five uh, orchestrations. So the deal was five pounds per arrangement and a, and a credit. And um, I got neither. I have a theory that if I'd got a credit on that family album, the Wombles would never have existed. Because really? Thank I'm, God you didn't. That's all I can say. Because I would have then be, been used by other people as an arranger. Ah. They would have gone, who wrote the arrangements? And then, oh, my. And, and other <laughs> arrangers of my same vintage who did the rock and roll arrangements. Oh, you know, he's into rock and roll. He does arrange. Let's get use him. I, I wasn't that person. I was too busy trying to run an A&R department, which I had no ability to run, and then decided to go freelance to be an arranger, producer, and carry on my solo career. So while I was doing that, everyone else was becoming the um, the, the sort of cool arrangers that, that eventually became the cool arrangers. So eventually, when if I'd been busy doing the strings for an Eric Clapton record or something... Uh, I wouldn't have ever done the Wombles. But Mike, did you ever go down to the UFO club where Floyd played, when, which which is the club that Nigel and, and Michael were helped run? No, you see, I wasn't even part of the scene. I was peripheral to that scene because I was young, wet behind the ears. I, I, as I said, I bought my Austin Reed suit because Ray Williams, who had signed me and went off to went off, and actually he broke Elton at the Troubadour Club. He's the one who did it. Did it. Absolutely no question. Albeit it was working with Dick James as his co-manager. It was Ray who took Elton to the Troubadour and broke him. And and he was so cool. I mean, everyone, he was just like everyone, you should be the pop star sort of thing. You know, he should have been the pop star. Uh, you look at, meet him now, he must be 70. Well, I'm 73, so he must be 75. He still looks like, you know, a younger version of Robert Redford. But I still want to. Uh, I want to get. I want to get back to this. Oh, you've got uh, the album like, now. I've got the first album. You didn't play yeah. on this, so this was the Hapsash guys made two albums, which are yes. really worth getting. This one was. Uh, it's, it's Hapsash and the Coloured Coat featuring the Human Host and uh, the Heavy Metal, heavy metal kids. kids, but not the Heavy Metal. Kids oh, not not Gary Holton. Not the Gary Holton Heavy Metal. No. And and this is this is uh, this came out whenever it did in '67. And this Brian is the, Jones had something to do with that. Original red vinyl. Oh, yeah, look. Yeah. Yeah, it was all very wow. cool. They, they, all these cool people went into a studio knowing not a first thing about music. Gary just went and spent 20 grand at Sotheby's on that just so he could do that. <laughs> <laughs> you played on the second album. What was that called, Mike? It was the first one. It was red vinyl, which, uh, and it was really cool looking as well. Um, and Brian Jones uh, was hanging around the studio doing stuff with them. I think he might have produced it, actually. And Didn't then Rory Gallagher them, play on it as well? Who? Rory Gallagher, did he not? Was he? Did he have I don't know. Like, I worked oh. with Roy, Rory Gallagher on something okay. I did. Oh right, but, okay. uh, which is called Tara Suite, one of my. Solo oh yeah, yeah, albums. yeah, yeah, yeah. The ignored version, the ignored solo albums, uh, we should call them. Uh, I should put them out as a box set. The ignored solo <laughs> albums. <laughs> they, they, they were actually very not ignored in other places, but in England, I was an ex-Womble, so just forget it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The thing is, though, and I think there is a connection with your entire career for me, with this with this sort of psychedelia, because this is a psych the beginning of psychedelia. It was, it was. Psychedelic period with Floyd and, and, and all yeah. of what we've discussed. And you playing on that album and being introduced to those guys because all of your work it seems to me Mike right till today is psychedelic it's yeah. 
it's yeah. got that surreal landscape. You always like to create a world. You always, you know, have crazy figures and good guys and bad guys and lots of humour. But you try yeah. and th that th there, there isn't really a project that you've never been ever been involved in that doesn't have a world around it. You're right. Yeah, even Tarot Suite, which is one of the ignored solo albums that are coming out on the Velvet box set. <laughs> Um, is, is about the tarot cards and, and and the order of you know the 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 priest high priestess and the joker and the magician and all yep. of that yes there's to me i it's the drama of it that i like i would have loved to have done more theater at, but it just happened that the the one big dive into theater that i did so um, come on yeah oh, they forgot to put the start. water in the swim they forgot to put the water in the swimming pool and i dived in the deep end uh and uh this is when you, you know, did the hunting of the snark, the, the yeah, Carol. And, and and died a death, and and getting back after that was very difficult. And the people people in the theatre business, I know. See, but we, why? We, but sorry, sorry, because I know you do write hit records, and you have, and obviously, you know, over the years, Art mm. Garfunkel, massive hit records. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it, it goes on. Um, but w this obsession with you wanting to create a world, what what, what is that, Mike? I don't know. It's um, maybe it's because I like. You see the um, bigger picture. You see narrative, don't you? I, I like projects. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I've never been a big listener to other other people's... Uh, for example, prog rock. I would not consider myself to be prog rock. But as you said, I did all these weird orchestrations that were then, then went with the electronica in the early 80s because the only reason for that is that all this stuff was being invented and why not use it, therefore, if it's being invented? And they all happened to be all electronic synthesizers that could be polyphonic, so let's use it. But do it with my orchestra thing, which is what I like doing, and that became my sort of thing. A lot of people don't realise... A lot of people don't know this, but um, my ilk... If you if I've got one, is this sort of like semi Bartokian sort of Stravinsky type? Yeah, yeah. It's early, I like, early 20th century classical. Yeah, but I like yeah. to meld it with kind of Chris Bedding doing. A heavy I was going to say because one thing that runs through a lot of your work, Mike, especially a lot of the orchestral stuff, especially stuff which in someone else's hands could, could be construed as very middle of the road, is you like you you like a lot of guitars on the heavy side. Yeah, don't you? that seems to and, be a real and, thing. And I like you. surprises, which I think and I've got I love from the family. Fact You've got a very long partnership with with my mate, the amazing Chris Bedding, which is oh, know. he's a, he's lovely, yeah. and he's a he's a great friend um, as well. It's only because he's good, and I used it. He turned up on a session orchestra with me when I was sort of nineteen or twenty, and he was he was the guitar player, and he was so weird. He was so unlike a session man. What 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 he was like? As I would write the parts out. Uh, sometimes for guitars it would just be chords because I was working really quickly on this series of albums I had to do. I had to do 12 albums. Was it six? I knew at the time anyway. And I worked out a thing where I could do three arrangements a day if I did them four, four hours each. So an hour to lay it out on the paper, an hour to do the rhythm section, an hour to put the strings in, and then an hour for the woodwinds and horns. And that's how I did it, three a day, for God knows how many days, until I had 72 arrangements. And then I went and made six albums, which were six songs per session, which you could do in those days. Were these solo uh, albums? No, no, no. well, they, they shouldn't have been, but they, we called them the Mike Bat Orchestra. Oh. It was to get myself out of a financial hole that was dug because I was hired to write them, and I was delighted, bought myself a houseboat for two and a half thousand quid. But they didn't pay me the money. So I owed the bloke the money for the houseboat and I had a box of arrangements that I'd done but my own publisher who had commissioned me to write these arrangements portrait of Bob Dylan portrait of Cat Stevens portrait of the Rolling Stones can you imagine oh, trying yeah. to make an orchestra sound like the Rolling Stones you know jumping jack flash with a 27 piece orchestra you know written by a 19 year old isn't the most uh, uh, exhilarating music well Andrew Alden did it didn't he yeah, but it was it was very very good training for me because I had no no in, no tuition at all in arranging and and this was my sort of do it yourself university course. Wow! In not impressive. only arranging but also to do six songs, which you were allowed to do. I'm sure, guy. You know, I don't whether whether you from when all your session work and everything. Yeah, you would know that in those days, 
uh, or maybe you, the sessions you did were all so cool and hip that you didn't <laughs> need to worry about all the musicians union rules and everything. Oh yeah, but, they were. Oh no, I've done yeah. some of those. I've done some of those. But but you know, you could do four tracks. You could do twenty minutes in three hours, but you could do four tracks if you weren't if you were going to overdub a voice or anything else. But you could do six tracks if you weren't going to overdub. So I went in and I did six tracks with a 27, 28, 29-piece orchestra. And you had to do six tracks. So always the last track, the last of the six, you're in such a sweat because it's your own money. You, you know, you've done a deal. I did a deal with other record companies to get the money to do this thing. Just enough money to make this thing. But they were done on such a tight budget that by the time I got to the last song, which had to be the sixth song on the session, it was three minutes to one or whatever. It wasn't as good a recording as if you'd done it two or three times, but you got a playthrough of it. And if you didn't start it by by 12.57, and if it's three minutes, if it was four minutes long, sometimes they say, well, I'm not doing it. Yeah, they'd stop. They do, yeah. Yeah. Orchestras so, will stop. Or you'd go over by a minute and you'd say, I hope that was all right. And they'd go, well, we are into overtime now. And I'd say, well, I can't afford overtime. And they say, well, never do it again then. And I never did. As we're trying to steer him into port here, aren't we? Which we're, is, we are trying which to say, which, which, which we're talking about, the, well, we're, <laughs> okay, we're, we're coalescing a lot of points, which is your thing of, uh, Ave, we've got Chris Bedding, we've got you liking to create worlds, and then we've got... Oh, so yeah, worlds. What, Creating Worlds, is that what uh, attracted you to the Wombles? Oh, is the world's got something to do with Wombles? Well, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I guess that is a world, sort of isn't it? We're just looking for a way in here, Mike. No, no, no. Help I, us out. Work I, with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was reading that you did that, all that stuff at, at Edinburgh, Guy. Yes. You know, comic stuff. I just love that. I would love... Just a surprise. I'd, I'd like to do a surprise gig at Edinburgh and to go and try and do a bit of comedy. Anyway, forget that. You should. Yeah, oh, no, I've, uh, seen, I've seen you give speeches. Oh, I can't well, remember where it was. I've seen you a couple of times. Neither can I. Uh, meanwhile, where were we? Oh, Wombles. Wombles. Uh, we're in Wimbledon. That's where we are. We're but isn't, that where, isn't that kind of what happened, though, Mike? I mean, in, your, in, in, in the sort of, like, trajectory, aren't we yeah. now at this place in time yeah, I, where, where, where this, uh, this, fam this famous kids' book, it, they're going to make a TV series of it. Yes, and they need some, and they need some music. Yeah, and they, someone came to you. But you do something very smart, don't you? Which is that you're offered a sort of like a session on it, and you say, "No, can I have the characters?" I was making a living while I was trying to have a hit. I'd left the record company. I was still signed to them. No, then that contract ran out, and I was signed to Dick James Music for a while. I was trying to be an artist still, and carrying on doing that but stay alive by writing jingles. And I had an artist, an agent, to, and she sent me one day to the, these people making the TV show. I was delighted, and they said, you know, we'd like a so I would like a tune. And I said, well, why don't I have a song? Because then I can write about the actual wombles and the kids will know immediately what they are. They said, oh, okay, good idea. So they said, you know, we'll give you 200 quid. I said, well, instead of 200 quid, why don't you give me the rights to the characters so that I can make a pop group because I really like the characters and they're just wacky and silly and lovely. So, so no one was thinking merchandise here? They, no. They, you, but you, apart from you, obviously. Well, it wasn't in their business plan. They were working for the BBC. They were getting so much so much uh, programme, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they did have merchandise very much in mind, but they, that didn't include pop group. And apart from which, it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to be successful, was it? You know, so so what were they losing? They were losing to some nutcase that wanted to go and write, do a dress up as a womble, get his mum to make a costume. So so that's what I did. Who made that's the costumes? My mum made all the costumes. Are you serious? I mean, really? Yeah, I mean we they sort of. I have said this story before because I, I knew it's we'd so get good. to your mum in the end. We're there. <laughs> no, no, no. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. My mum, she was great. She was a arty. She was a PE teacher and an art teacher, but she was wacky. She was funny. My dad was a very sensible ex-army officer, engineer type. Still lovely, but different. And uh, anyway, my mum made all the one because she used to make dressing up costumes for us when we were kids. We used to go and clean up at the local Sunday. They hated us. We'd go in and we'd win the fancy dress competition and then we'd be off down the road to the next one. It wasn't <laughs> quite like that. 
But that was the image I've got in my mind that we... we Britain's got to, talent. Yeah, we were the sort of local gangsters that, that could win. win <laughs> like we were the craze of our, of our generation. Of, of the furry world. Always get the box of chocolates at the Sunday afternoon fete because we would have the best costumes. Yeah, so, yeah that's, not the, that's not the craze. No, no, but they, <laughs> it was, we, they had a manner, didn't they? And we did. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they had acne, we had Wimbledon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Except it was um, wherever we were living. And how, so how did you go about so, assembling the so, Wimbledon? Okay. Sorry, yeah. So I, I am trying to get in to see Clive Selwood, who you may know because you, you're, you're hip kind of people, um, th that he was John Peel's mate and he... He had a record. He ran John Peel's record label. Um, ah. And he got hired as the... Was that I didn't Dandelion know or something? Dandelion? Yeah, Dandelion. Dandelion Records, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he was the head of marketing for CBS Records when I sold them, finally, after not being able to sell it to anybody else, I finally managed to sell it to CBS Records for 500 quid. And they wouldn't see me because they just thought it was a spin-off from a TV series. Either they're going to make their 500 quid back or they're not. And I thought, I've got to get in to see the marketing people. And they wouldn't see me. In the end, I sort of said, rang my mum and said, Mum, yeah. can you make me a Womble costume? She said, what's a Womble costume? <laughs> <laughs> I told her, drew a picture, and she you know, saw the things. And so she made me a Womble costume. And uh, she made it out of... Just she was like a womble when she made it because she made it out of all the things around the house. Right. In those days, you used to have a plastic washing up mat that you could coil into a, a nose and stitch down the side. So that, and we used a black ping pong ball. I had one womble costume, and I decided I would wear this womble costume until the fucking record broke. And um, what well, the old day everywhere down the yeah, shops. Yeah, Got yeah. It. I put it on on a Monday morning, and I took it off on a Saturday evening. I did take <laughs> it off to sleep. So, so, so I, I would go on the tube in it and just sit, sit there with a newspaper. It's amazing how nobody took any notice. Can you imagine? The, the British personality was that you don't say anything. If you see yeah. something you don't understand, you just like keep away from it. I remember coming out of Green Park tube station to try and go to, and I, which is the wrong place for CBS Records because it was down in Theobald's Road. But anyway, I was, so I had to get a cab. So I waved this cab down. I'm wearing my Womble costume. And he stopped, slowed down, nearly stopped, looked at me, and I said, can you take me to... Uh, he must have stopped, because I said, can you take me to Theobald's Road? And he said, sorry, madam, and drove off. <laughs> he must have thought I was a woman in a fur coat with a great big long nose. Anyway, wearing my Womble costume, I walked into the, the offices of CBS Records, which eventually became Sony Records, just for those who don't know, and up the stairs, and I went right past... Clive's office, all the way up to the managing director's office, and I knocked on the door. I sort of said to his secretary, because they all had a secretary sitting outside, and then she said, "Who shall I say it is?" I said, "Well, say it's Orinoco Womble." And um, so she went in, and came, and he came out, and he started falling about laughing, and we, and they got all the girls from what they called the typing pool in those days. I mean, it was literally that that sexist. All girls me and the managing director and we pretended to sign a contract with a great big pencil made out of a broom handle and suddenly they had an artist the point being that i'd said, thought to myself why won't they see me because i'm not an artist if they had an artist they could interview and you know send out to pr do promotion then then they might take some notice so eventually i went off and did promotion and they i i, I would just get on the train in those days, you could, and go all the way to Birmingham without even the record company knowing. And I'd end up in Birmingham, and I'd go to BRMB Radio and walk in with the record, and while they were on the air, and say, I'm a Womble, I've got a record, what do you think? And they'd play it. And that, that, everywhere I went, we'd sell 100 records in that town in that day. So but you'd, you'd made it a bit of a performance art piece, really. Yeah. Well, y yeah, you might call it that. To me, I, was, I just call it being desperate to sell a record. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and so I think you, you've put your finger on part why I do so many things. Well, one is to stay in work. Uh, and the other is just I'm just, I suppose I'm a bit creatively greedy. I like to do too many different things. But you call it performance art. And I suppose it is in my soul. 
And I love the, I love the, you know, cut to sort of zero, zero, the mime artist type of thing, because I wasn't a dancer to save my life, couldn't possibly. So I would never, ever put myself up as a dancer. And but, when, when you put the band together, sorry, Mark, yeah, go when on, you put yeah. the band together, so how, how was everyone about, like, okay, you're going to dress up as a Womble? Well, that was, the they didn't have time to think what happened. Yeah. They know they've got a Womble as an artist, and the record's selling 100 a day in each town, but only the towns I visit. At the time, I visit them, and then nothing, or a bit more. But anyway, so um, Paddy Fleming, he rang me up, and, and it, it was Robin Nash was the producer of Top of the Pops, as you, I'm sure oh, you yeah, remember yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and he used to call him Robin, because he had an Irish accent. He says, Robin uh, is asking you, uh, asking me a question. He said, is there a, a band of Wombles? If there are, you're on Top of the Pops on Thursday. It was already Tuesday. You know what it's like. If you had, if a record went in, at number forty-seven or something, you yeah, had a chance of being chance. on top of the pops because you're going up yeah, yeah. the fifty. And we yeah, went in yeah. at thirty-six. And so he, it was his idea to put a band together of one. No, months, no, he said Robin Nash asked if there was a band, and because it was presented as on, I'd put the Wombles, not O Womble, on the record label. So if, if there was a band, they were on. So he rang me up and he said, is there a band? And I just lied and I said, well, yeah, there is. And he said, well, you're on Top of the Pops on Thursday. So I rang my mum and I said, Mum, <laughs> can you make me three more Womble costumes in, in a that day so, and a half? Good job, good job there wasn't a horn section on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, 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 who were the Wombles? Who played them? Well, what it was was we, we had, I had a friend that I played with when I was a kid in school called Andy Renton, who was a drummer, he was a great drummer. He loved, um, he was a very messy drummer. In other words, he loved Keith Moon. It was all all over the place, fantastic. Uh, and he was a, young, a year younger than me and we used to have a duo. Anyway, I remembered him and he had a band and they lived just over the road from where I lived in, coincidentally, in um, Earl's Court, my first flat in Earl's Court, it was right by the tube station. And just over the road lived Hattie Jakes. That's right, in Erdley Crescent. Exactly. Yes, John and Hattie with Robin and Jake in downstairs. Exactly. Yeah. Now, and, now, and Robin, who's the guitar, the son was a guitar player. I've yeah. got to tell this story. I've got to tell the story when it gets to it. Okay. To it. Well, well, Rob, you carry on. Robin Le Majurier, they lived literally, I could see their front door from my flat. They ha happened to have a band with my mate, the drummer, and his brother, the bass player, and Robin was the guitar player. And they used to come up to our flat occasionally just to bugger about and maybe have a <coughs> joint or something that I didn't partake in because it made me sick. And I knew them as friends. And then when my mum said, can we, you know, I said, can we have three more Womble costumes? We all convened on my mum's house and uh, made, spent all night making three more costumes. So the whole family was stitching and sewing and whatever we could do, painting painting noses black and stuff like that. And I rang up the boys, my mates who were the band, I forget their name was as a band. I said, guys, um, I've got this thing called the Wombles. You've got to wear costumes. What do you think? And they went, anything, you know, sure. So we met at TV Centre. I had four costumes. My mum came to sort of make sure everyone got into them all right. They zipped up the front. Uh, I said, right, this is what they are. You put the long nose on. You've got to keep it on. You're not allowed to take it off when you get in the studio because the kids will see it and everything. So uh, we tried a few steps out in the um, in the dressing room. And um, our t turn came. We went up. They pointed the cameras at us. We mimed the thing. And that was it. And then everyone went, whoa, we just saw this thing on Top of the Pops last night with these bloody long noses and everything and they went out and bought the record and it went from 36 to sort of 16 and then 16 to the radio the record company had warned me don't don't be disappointed it won't get any further than 36 uh, dan loggins who is kenny loggins brother he was the a and r man oh, wow. <laughs> i met him on the stairs coming down from colin forsey's office who was the head of promotion we're at number 36 i said and he said yeah but don't be disappointed it won't go up any further and so then we get in on top of the pops, and of course we were at number 16 or whatever it was, and we went to number four with that first single. And it was the first of eight top 40s that we had. I don't even know if this is true, but I, I've always loved the story, and I've said it, which is that wasn't it around this time, at some point, Robin, 
got busted for weed. Yes. And so was forced to leave the Wobbles. And the great thing is, this is at the height of, like, Dad's army and everything. So all the press go running to John Lemez for a quote. And John, as always, just comes up with the immortal line, it would appear my son is too wicked to womble. <laughs> I never heard that. I never heard that 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 thing. We had we had take, we had taken advantage of Hattie's fame by um, having Hattie do a, a photograph of her with her son in a Womble costume at BBC Centre while we were doing Top of the Pops about third record in or something like that. And so everyone knew that Hattie Jake. I kept people kept ringing me up and saying, "Are you Hattie Jake's son?" I said, "No." Somebody else in a Womble costume, pretty much identical to mine, is Hattie Jake's son. <laughs> and, you know, so I was always, people thought I must be Hattie Jake's son. Could you have remained completely inconspicuous and no one had known it was Mike Bat? But you didn't. You revealed yourself. I did. And was there an element of regret about that? What, later that, on? Later on. Possibly. But I mean, I, I became a bit more of a face on television. You know, I used to do Saturday morning television. I had a solo, a couple of solo records that I did tellies on. So I only I be- say that because it because it was harder for you then to do your yeah. serious stuff. What was I not telling them? I suppose I was not. If I'd not told them I was Mike Bat, they'd have said, "Who aren't you?" Yeah. You know, because I, they didn't uh, know who I was anyway. Although people like John Peel were sort of fans of mine. Of dare I say, i.e., I was not fans, but you know. Uh, they they would play my stuff and say, you know, this is quite an interesting record by this bloke called Mike Bat, da 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 da, and people, I was sort of one to watch, you know, uh, and then the Wombles happened and John Peel never played any of my stuff ever again, uh, and uh, I was definitely not the sort of person that you'd invite on the old grey whistle test. But because um, did you have people coming up to you, sort of saying, "Will you turn our children's characters into a pop group?" After that. Uh, I had lots of people ask me to write children's songs and right. uh, do stuff like that, yeah. And I, I did some of them. In fact, Paddington, they asked for a song and then I wrote one and then they decided they didn't want a song. It, what, and I absolutely know it wasn't because they didn't like it. In fact, the, rec, the, pub, the company that made the thing, it's the same company that made the Wombles, it was the second thing they made after that. The, the guy who made, Michael Bond, who oh, yeah, yeah, wrote yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Paddington, he didn't want a song. He didn't want it to be like the Wombles. And I think he didn't probably... He probably knew that, that after the Wombles group happened, the Wombles books became less important to the public than, dare I say, than the records at that time. So Because they thought of the Wombles as a pop group, primarily. And even though that isn't the case... So the author they, hated you? The, like- well, the, <laughs> she never said she hated me, but... <laughs> I think they all they sort of loved me as well because I'd made their thing famous. Yeah. Am I am I right to think that I've got a memory of first meeting you with Pete Townsend at at some um, review oh. that w- he was doing? That's he, right. uh, he did a the Snowball Review, which was That's for it. domestic violence charity. Yeah. And 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 I went on and I remember doing through the barricades, but it was before I recorded it with Spandau. And you. <laughs> You were on dressed as a slag. A slug. <laughs> Do you want to say that a again? A slag? S- dressed as a slug. Or s- and I mean, you I, crawled across... You barricades, a- that is the most sensational, fantastic song. I know you don't need telling that, and you've been told it a million times. Yeah, thank you. That, that song just, oh, just made me think, fucking hell, might as well give up. Oh, brilliant, oh. brilliant song. This is exactly what made, um, it made me think. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> But um, but you were you were crawling across uh, yeah, the stage I came as, on a as a slug. slug. Yeah. Um, I, my Did mom your mum make that slug, as well? My mum made me a slug <laughs> outfit because I I thought I'm going to just have a bit of fun here. I know what it was. I was doing a thing for Princess Diana and Prince Charles. Well, Princess Diana. I had a girlfriend. It was after my. This was after my horrendous uh, uh, divorce. Very briefly, before I married my next and current wife. Before that, I had a a period of freedom and I was uh, having a little fling with a young lady who was a soloist at the Royal Ballet. And she uh, said, oh, we've got this sort of end of term jolly that we have. Uh, The Prince and Princess of Wales come. And, uh, you know, could you do do an act or something for it? 
I thought, well, yeah, of course. And so I, I, I made up this thing called um, The Slugs, a band called The Slugs, and I uh, got David Essex to be the drummer because he plays quite handy drums. And I got a ramp built so that I could f- crawl up the ramp and still play the piano by lying down. Right. <laughs> so my mum made these sort of silvery glitter slug outfits. And oh, Andy Hill played bass, but he, right. he ended up lying on his back playing it. So you could see his orange underparts, which was really not very sluggish. And he got told off for it. Because you couldn't play the bass lying down facing the fucking floor, he told me. So it was me, Andy, and, and we did this thing. And, you know, we met uh, Prince Charles and Diana. And uh, that was the end of that. Uh, so I got these three slug costumes. So the next, when I got rung up by Pete Townsend to please come and be in his, what's his name? Whatever it was. Snowball Review. Yeah, I thought, well, I don't know if this because I was afraid of going on as me or that I just thought it'd be a laugh. So we went, I went on as a slug and I, and I sang Slip Sliding Away, I think, by Paul Simon. <laughs> Give us a nice little segue perhaps into his partner, his ex-partner. Art Garfunkel. Yes, yes, indeed. And you're, so, you're arty. So how was it working with him, writing that big hit? Well, I wrote wrote the piece and they said to me, who, do, who would you like to sing it? And I said, well, I'd really like Art Garfunkel, but I know you won't get him. So here's a list of 10 people. Art Garfunkel was on the top. Colin Blunstone was number two. Love Colin. Oh. He's been on the show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. Um, it's a singer I absolutely adore. He sang on your tarot album, didn't he? Yeah. It, yes, he did. Uh, cool, you know a lot of stuff. Uh, and I was oh John John from Yes was on it as well. Anderson, oh. yeah, Anderson. And I was number ten, you know. So just in case you couldn't get any of them, I'll sing it. And uh, they said no, let's try and get the real thing. So they literally got him within three days or something. They got hold of Goddard Lieberson, who was a big figure in CBS Records. Because at, at this time, wasn't Art was very much trying to be wanted to be an actor, didn't he? He was. He was yeah, in a very good yeah. movie, actually. Yeah. Uh, it was in that yeah. great Nick Rogue one. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is what finally pissed Paul Simon off. That's right, uh, yeah. You know. So three or four days later, Art Garfunkel's sitting in my front room letting me find out what key to do the arrangement in. I drew the arrangement overnight because the session was the next morning. And I often did that throughout my life. I've often done the arranging. The last piece for the session was always done the night before the session. So I turned up, you know, after sleep and uh, we started recording and we put down the rhythm section again with Chris Spedding. And anyway. it's a fantastically sophisticated song, though, Mike. My point is your, your early 20th century classical influence is definitely uh, a play here, isn't it? Thank you. Well, it was a mood thing, really. It's like w- once I'd worked out there was going to be about death, which is what they wanted. They write us a song about death. I mean, that, what do you write? Death, death, glorious death. <laughs> Nothing quite like it for... Yeah, well, that's that then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so eventually I thought of what to write, and it was very minory and, and mysterious about what happens when you die. It's, you know, the biggest question on earth, isn't it? To us, uh, most of us, uh, you know, what happens? Anyway, so that's what it, it was about, and so I, that's why it was quite mysterious and minorish. And um, yeah, he, he he sang it. He, he asked if he could co-produce it, and I was brave enough to say no. Uh, I don't do co-producing. <laughs> yeah. At the age of like, twenty-five or twenty-six, whatever. That's quite it was. brave, especially as you, you're. Yeah, I'm amazed you managed to get the guy. Let's like let's turn him down on his demands. Yeah, exactly. He said, I'd like to co-produce it. I said, well, I'm afraid, you know, I don't do <laughs> But this was a great that. This was a great period for you, wasn't it? I mean, David Essex had, had, a, had, a, had you know, Winter's yeah, Tale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, and it was, and you'd work, Elkie Brooks, you'd produced... Uh, yes. Of course, Lila 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 Lila. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, was, it was a really good, you know, you were a happening guy. Yes, unlike now, yeah. Didn't Although you've just produced the Hawkwind album, the new Hawkwind album. Yes, so that just proves I'm not a happening guy. Well, it's, it's pretty hit happening. No, no. You I'm might be kidding. up for a prog award. Uh, anyway, the yeah. fact was that Garfunkel and I were like two j- people jousting all night uh, to try and get that vocal done. It took about four hours. Oh, really? To get the vocal done. And uh, in the end, I lay exhausted on in a heap on the floor. And he went off back to the Savoy to have some sleep. And Chris Bedding came in to um, to repair the one note that hadn't been right in the perfect take that I said was perfect. And Artie said, no, it isn't. Let's do it again. I said, no, 
and that's how we sort of fell out of it before we did the vocal and that's that was why it took so long to do because he'd sort of lost trust in me because I'd accepted a take that wasn't perfect knowing that there was enough isolation for Chris to come back in and put that one quaver that he'd put wrong put a foot wrong one tiny moment was easily repairable so we used that take at my insistence and that meant there was a bit of bad feeling between me and Artie before we went into the studio to do the vocal. Did you patch it day. up afterwards? Oh, we patched it up afterwards. I mean, particularly when we went to number one, it makes a lot of difference. I, was, I had bad flu and I was in, in uh, bed. I remember it very clearly. And I, um, I took a phone call, which was from him. And he said, you know, I rang, just thought I'd ring and say how wonderful. And uh, we have, you know, I, 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 it's almost, if I do the accent, it's, it sounds as if I'm taking the piss, which I'm not, because we became great sort of buddies after that. And he, we did some good stuff together after that. As made some more, I did two tracks for his Greatest Hits album, which therefore deemed it wasn't a Greatest Hits album, though, because they weren't <laughs> hits. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and also he was on my The Hunting of the Snark as well. So, and he did a great job on that. With some great people, so John Gilgood and yeah, Julian yeah. Lennon, yeah, who we've had on the show. The Albert Hall show, he had an amazing cast. That was fun. Yeah, the Albert Hall yeah. show. Uh, uh, I think that the, the show was a lot better. I mean, if I, you know, I, I I did some stupid sort of financial things not that long ago, and I, it's not within my capability to just put it on again. But I, if I had one thing I could do, would be to put the, the snark show back on again because, ah. you know, it's, it's, I think it's the, it's the central work of my life. And I suppose, as you say, Gary talking about building worlds I didn't build the world of the snark because it already existed but I built my own version of it before we leave we need to talk about your latest project because it's a mad it's again it's another mad thing of a, it's another world isn't it it's draw, it's with David Quantick as involved with David Quantick yeah yeah David's great fabulous David he's uh, brilliant so I rang up David and I said hey um fancy writing a novel and he went yeah all right and and and, and so we told him all about the backstory of all the bits and stuff in the half written songs bits of lyrics gave it to all, all to him and then he and I would have zoom meetings just like this and talk about the story and so this, and this is going to be a comic and it, and an album and a, and game, a game right Roblox. Yeah, it's all three game. of those things we call it the trinity and, and uh the backstory I kept saying to David we need backstory 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 um and so he created all this mythology that is like that. That's that's just a uh, right. And uh, it's, so it's a graphic novel. It's yeah. a graphic novel in seven parts, and we and and it's already on its fourth. Uh, it's in you know we managed to get distribution in W H Smiths. Um, and and how's it how's fourth. it doing? It's doing all right. Um, I mean, it's not uh, worldwide smash success yet, but you know we sell you know you know enough comics every month to think it's worth putting them all out. And where can we find this music? Uh, well, the music is called Songs from Croix Noir, which is spelled C-O-R-O-C-R-O-I-X. Yeah, as in Croix. N-O-I-R-E. Yeah. Right. See, and we it's, needed it's, someone like you in the room. It's on streaming. It's streaming. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's uh, out as uh, on vinyl, uh, CD, yeah. and streaming. Uh, Songs from Croix Noir... And it's by uh, Ace Hansel Jr. Listen, Look, this I, has been amazing. Lovely, lovely, well, lovely, wandery chat. I'm sorry I rambled so much, but I'm afraid that's what you that's get. That's what we want. That's what we want. That's what this is about. Well, it's an honour. It's an honour to be um, invited, even though I had to... Um, Bang on our door. <laughs> Who do you had have to, to hurl abuse at me on, on Twitter. Did he? I, 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 did a, <laughs> he did. I, did, I did. You can beep it out, but I, did, I wrote a tweet saying, who do you have to fuck to get onto Rock, rock on Tours? <laughs> and um and, and and guy wrote back saying it was actually him i said and, it was me obviously yeah <laughs> and, and, and i and i and know, so we I, did we'll I, leave it as a mystery we'll leave I it feel, as a mystery to all your listeners yeah. as to i feel bad I, I feel bad that we didn't really talk about your um amazing we didn't uh, touch on uh, katie Malua katie Malua and that or, dramatic or of, and, yeah. and, and your yeah. work with marianne faithful but uh we'll save oh, that who i saw yesterday how is she fact, i went she's she's so much better so I, I go and visit her up at Denville Hall. Oh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. 
Yeah, no, she's doing a. She's so much better. It's really good. Thanks, Mike. Anyway, thank you for well, look, coming uh, on. That, By the brilliant. way, have have a good tour with your saucerful. We got to look into the mad mind of Mike. Bats. Yeah, we we got a, a right old rummage around, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, that's kind of who he is, isn't he? He's off on tangents here, and it, that's what his work's like. If you open up, yeah. he's got a book out. This mad book, I, I forgot what it's called now. It's a, it's something. Uh, oh, what is it it's called? It's called the Chronicles of Don't Be So Ridiculous Valley. I mean, he's that's still. What, yes. He's he's live he's got a mad mind that is 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 huffing and puffing and creating and and, and pronouncing endlessly. Yes, pronouncing. All right, as <laughs> as you do when you pronounce from a stage, you know. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Well, is that pronounce? Is that the word? I, never, anyway, never mind. Um, we're going to be back next week with someone else. And we'll be we'll, from from America probably from we're, America, yeah. Because yeah. we'll be on the road in America, so uh, who knows? I've got to start packing. In fact, no, I've got to go off. I've got a gig tonight with Chris Difford, which is going to be very, very nice. Enjoy. It's good night from me. Good night from them. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.